Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how are you doing? Your, your spring break is over, but I know you were traveling around giving talks. Is that right? I was. I was. And now I'm back enjoying second winter here in lovely, <laughs> lovely Maine. Yeah. You guys got that nor'easter, right? Are you still under a bunch of snow? Not so much snow, but it's cold and blustery and, and not, in, not entirely spring-like yet up here. So... Yes. Uh, and uh, joined, of course, also by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Hi, Harvey. Um, are you guys about to start your spring quarter? What's going on? Yes, we are at the end of spring break right now. And on Monday, spring quarter begins. That's exciting. A fresh start, a chance to just wipe the slate clean and overcome all the problems that emerged in winter quarter. I don't know. It's like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> yeah, it's the same day. It's the same quarter over and over again. Although exactly. appropriately, you know, Harvey is wearing a, a, a spring green short sleeve shirt, you know, whereas I am still wearing like four layers and a wool sweater. So I, <laughs> I feel like he is better ready for his spring than, than I am for mine. Yes, indeed. Today on the podcast, we have three exciting topics to discuss. We are going to talk about Julia Walker and Glenn Odom's provocative article in the Journal of Dramatic Theory and Criticism, fall 2016, the article entitled Comparative Modernist Performance Studies, a Not-So-Modest Proposal. We are going to talk about applied theater in the field. So the um, existence of programs that train people to employ theater in education, in therapy. What is the status of applied theater in the broader context of theater and performance studies? And finally, we will talk about the new theater seasons. 2017, 2018 uh, theater seasons are being announced. And in American Theater Magazine, there's a handy page where you can go and look at their announcements and the plays that they're planning to stage. What do these new seasons tell us about trends in American theater? Before we get to those topics, we have the news roundup. It was just announced in uh, American Theater Magazine that Carrie Perloff is going to leave as artistic director of ACT in San Francisco. Uh, Perloff had a 25-year career um, as artistic director of that theater. Um, So that's a big announcement. In terms of the big organizations in the field, um, Aster has released its accepted um, working session proposals for the 2017 conference. I haven't seen this webpage, but um, I'm excited to look at what the working sessions are. I don't think they've been posted yet. I think uh, conveners have been notified. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I was so. Um, um, I think. How did it go for you? Did you get? Did you get? A we're good. We're good. Good. Kali good. Westerling and I will be doing. Uh, Digital self-defense for artists and activists That's at, great. Uh, at Aster 2017. Good. So we'll look for that link. I remember last year, sometimes that link is sort of hiding on the Aster webpage, but, and, and you needed to get it through an email. Um, but we'll keep our eyes out for those Aster working sessions. Sarah brings to our attention that there's a new series from Palgrave, um, Adaptation and Theater. And also, uh, she notes that uh, Cambridge University Press has created a new sort of system for public uh, publication access uh, called Cambridge Core. And you can 
pay essentially to get chapters of books, right? Yeah, I mean, I just started playing around in this, but that's certainly what it uh, what it appears to be. Um, I, b- I believe it's at cambridge.org slash core or something like that. I think if you if you Google Cambridge Core, it'll take you to the new their new their new platform. And they've actually they're doing some interesting. I think they're changing a lot of their online presence because they also have swapped over to a new Twitter feed. And uh, and they have one specifically for theater. So there's there's some new stuff happening over there. Um, anything else, guys, news wise that we should touch on? Uh, Tr- Trisha Brown. Uh, yeah, of course. Oh my gosh, uh, yes. recently uh, you know just passed away. So yeah, absolutely, uh, the expects- choreographer, founder of the Trisha Brown Dance Company, passed away on March 18th. Yeah. Um, an important figure in American dance. Um, also, we noticed that um, Indecent, Paula Vogel's play, is going to Broadway and will will open soon. And of course, we um, talked about this play because it was uh, accepted as her um, dissertation, allowing her to complete and, and uh, get her PhD from Cornell University in a really fascinating story. So for our first topic, we wanted to talk about uh, Julia Walker and Glenn Odom's uh, article in JDTC that came out fall 2016. This is a really interesting article proposing a kind of new alignment in several fields, including performance studies and modernist studies. I will say as disclosure that Julia is a colleague of mine. Her office is right down the hall. So listeners should understand that Julia is a colleague and a friend of mine. But to start this discussion off, I thought we would throw it to our in-house modernist, uh, (laughs) Sarah. Uh, Your first book was on uh, Gertrude Stein and and Dada. What, from a modernist perspective, can you tell us about what this article is and what it's proposing? Well, one of one of the wonderful things that that I think this uh, this article does is to remind the reader of the inherent intersections in and among different disciplines that m- might we that, that I think sometimes we forget about. So the the overview of this not so modest proposal is to kind of take the the critical reassessment of modernist studies in the form of modernisms and the rethinking of modern modernity and the sort of multiplicity of modernisms and the changing uh, notions of, of historicity and historical approaches to that as a way of then looking at how some of those changing conversations might affect the way in which we think about performance studies. And one of the, the major arguments and sort of reasons for this article that they come to is to combat and to complicate what they call the the culture of presentism, right? The idea of a kind of uh, overwhelming critical and analytical focus on the now and a and a lack of historical grounding. So so they kind of work through different changes in and among these these various fields: literary studies, performance and theater studies, modernist studies recent theoretical changes and critical approaches and how those changes might radiate and, and help us to to rehistoricize, I would say, or historicize anew uh, what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, and then at the end, they have a kind of wonderful so, um, kind of list of what they could then call comparative studies, right? So comparative modernist performance studies, the, the CMPS, mm-hmm. uh, that they break down into into. Four, I'm sorry, uh, six 
uh, sort of key points. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, readers, you know, listeners can can read this piece for yourself. It's it's a it's a very well written piece. It flows really nicely. It's also for me incredibly dense in terms of its references to to the to the fields and how we might rethink our own position in and among them. And and as I said before, it reminds us of these kind of critical intersections. But one of the one of the things that I think is particularly helpful kind of at the end that I could also see being a potential a, a, a chance for a potential criticism, right? Which is is at the end of the at the their last their kind of last couple of points talk about, you know, needing to do things like look, view things that are phenomenological as well as, you know, in in an epistemological frame. I think that's, you know, in point number 2. Mm-hmm. Um and then and then point number 5 is understanding all terms of analysis that render living processes as objects of study, periodizations, definitions, etc. as necessarily provisional. And that such periodizations may be useful in a temporarily static form. And, and so I, I mean, I totally uh, am, am enthusiastic about what the piece is trying to do. At the same time, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm, if I'm coming to this without, without a, a, a kind of position already, and I'm, and I'm taking seriously their critique of presentism, and I'm thinking about like my own historical analytical project, these last two points feel to me as to be everywhere and nowhere at once. That if mm-hmm. everything is is always provisional and conditional, then and in flux, then where does one begin as a as a point of entry? Particularly when the objects of study have already, in earlier points and at different points in the essay, been rendered as themselves dynamic over time and. And I just, I, I just, it just occurred to me that if you t- if you took this really seriously without already having a kind of position, that it could it could open up so much flux as to be as to as to be difficult to, as to know where to ground. So I just that was my initial response. I'm curious how how either of the the two of you saw it. Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I, I think I understand where you're coming from with the kind of open endedness or provisional nature of the way that concepts are treated in this or, or, you know, sort of proposed to be treated. I think there's an interesting dynamic in it where at once it seems like it's making this sort of narrower and narrower Venn diagram of, you know, what's the work that belongs simultaneously to performance studies, modernist studies, and sort of uh, comparativist studies. On the other hand, it keeps a lot of things open. The core definitions of performance modernity are deliberately left open so that they're not trying to stake out a claim about what is performance and what's not. But I I responded different, differently to the notion that concepts and categories should be left provisional, because to me, that didn't mean, I think I, I came at that more from the side of these are actually solid objects rather than these are ephemeral objects. In other words, what I take them to be saying is, you know, imagine that you wanted to create a journal or write a book about global South modernisms. In my mind, what they're saying is that that would be a useful piece of work because we need to understand uh, modernity, you know, in a sort of decentralized way and in a comparativist way. That's not to say that, you know, we should accept that as the definitive and permanent paradigm through which, you know, all uh, performance activity or theatrical activity in certain places should be understood for all time, but that there is a process of 
recognizing new entities that is part of the work of what performance historians do, and we should welcome those things as provisional. Um, Perhaps it's paradoxical, because how are you, then you're sort of making a weak claim, you know, you're saying there's a, we can talk about, you know, global South modernisms for now. (laughs) Um, But I I, I agree with you, and I I, I take your point. I think for me, the the trick is, it seems like a really interesting and, and very productive intervention assuming that you already have a sense of what you're focused on, right? Global South modernisms. And then, and then this model is a complicating response. I think for me, it was less clear how one would start with, 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 with an idea in this framework. Harvey, right. did you want to? No, I agree with you. I, I think that the, the base here is that you're, you're coming with your own existing tool set. Right, and then the push that the authors are making, you know, is to actually encourage you to become a bit sort of uh, more pluralistic, at least comparative in your mm-hmm. uh, approach, right? Um, you know, but that's the sort of underlying subtext for this thing, and, and this is where I think they're trying to get uh, scholars from different um, training backgrounds and approaches to come together. Mm-hmm. This was interesting reading as a non-modernist. So from my point of view, not, you know, being a little bit less invested in what modernism is or modernity is. It was interesting to think about this move. It seems like the agenda is somewhat to, you know, use performance studies and uh, modernity studies or modernism studies to solve each other's problems. So that if the problem with new modernist studies is a kind of question mark on the question uh, on what periodization is or how it's productive, then what the what what Walker and Odom propose is that performance studies because it is process oriented and emphasizes change rather than sort of static creations allows us to think of the the postmodern and the post postmodern as belonging to a new phase of of modernism and that's interesting and then reciprocally because performance studies has a presentism problem or an ahistoricity problem if we think of performance studies as being essentially a modernist field, then it becomes more historically conscious uh, than its, you know, sort of status quo iteration. This, I think, is totally reasonable. In other words, if performance studies reimagined itself as part of a kind of set of ways of looking at uh, the historical epoch of late capitalism or, you know, capitalism or just modernity, then it would be more uh, historically sophisticated than it is now, and there would be less just kind of ahistorical riffing on theory and um, subjective encounters with objects. But it, it also sort of, that would sort of constrain performance studies, because I do believe that people take performance studies concepts and apply them to the ancient world and things outside the purview of, of modernity. So that to me would was an interesting gambit as well, because you know they don't come out and say, look, we should just acknowledge that performance studies is not about ancient history. It's about the modern world. But that would seem to exclude or marginalize um, work that wanted to examine, I don't know, ancient Egypt or uh, medieval Europe as being engaged in what we think of as social performance or cultural performance. I have a question that is perhaps less about the the essay and and more about that kind of premise, because it, it sort of came up for me of the the why the presentism and why the investment in the now and 
because this this is a critique that comes up periodically. Um, and I mean, I think part of it is that things that feel closer feel more accessible uh, and and that you have more of a stake in them, perhaps. Um, I know other people have argued that, uh, you know, theater history training has uh, declined or is not as rigorous or that students just aren't willing to, to do the extra work of what it takes. I'm, I'm now channeling like Lawrence Senelik, right? The, the, you know, like learning multiple languages and really making a kind of investment in travel. And, and I'm just wondering I, I, that I think there are conceptual reasons and also material reasons if, if either of you have a, have a, a sense of that. Because in some ways, the, the, the part of the modernist argument here is, is an al- almost follows the path of performance studies, which is, you know, can we talk about lots of things as being modern and modernist and, and kind of create a, a, a larger umbrella for that, for that field? But I'm, you know, I mean, you both work with, with graduate students more than I do, well, certainly now, but, but even in the past. And so I'm just curious how you, you know, do you see that presentism coming up in, in projects and, and why? Panel, you're making a face. So go for Cause it. Because <laughs> no, my face, my face is meant to signal that I want Harvey to answer. Um, uh, it's a tough question. Why is performance studies presentist? I think that's a different question from, you know, what's happening to theater history and theater historiography. I, if I'm to speculate, and I do, I, I am curious to know what Harvey thinks working with PhD students, but in a in a you know interdisciplinary theater studies program, but. I think there are real material pressures to finish early, um, taking on an additional language or taking on an additional year of dissertation research to get into archives that might be far away or just take a lot of time to systematically engage with. The postmodern university and with its pressures to get people out in five years makes some of those projects less feasible. So perhaps students are not as interested in getting into it in that way. But I also think this, the answer to this question intersects with um, questions about the origin of performance studies itself. And part of where performance studies comes from, I think, is a kind of desire to expand the scope of, an, of analysis outside of theater as a particular you know, Western-oriented form. And that's a more recent intellectual move. Um, And I think it's linked to the decline of theater. So maybe it's an economic question as well, as theater has given up part of its share of popular entertainment to film other mediatized forms, maybe people just think about it less. My gut feeling is that theater history has always been presentist. So what what I mean by that is you think about the origins of theater studies, the rise of theater departments in the early 20th century, Right, you know, what people generally looked at uh, and studied was theater that existed within the previous generation, right? Uh, and we've kind of moved forward. And a, a lesson here is that we can look at theater departments today um, and realize that theater departments, you know, tend to put their hands up and kind of shrug uh, if it's anything before 1850, right? You know, so we 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 let the classics departments, you know, be the ones who really handle. Um, you know, uh, you know uh, sort of the Greeks, for example, uh, we let English departments sort of handle Shakespeare, right? And then it's like theater kind of comes into its own sort of, you know, hits its stride um, in the like late 19th century. And in light of that, it seems really weird to me that like there is this culture within our field where uh, sort of self-identified 
historians of theater, um, you know, sort of create this wall, you know, uh, that separates them from sort of people who work with theater post, like, I don't know, like 1950, uh, even as their work itself is kind of constrained to the late 19th century, right? Like, 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 let's actually acknowledge the fact that within this long history, you know, they're still working fairly recently, <laughs> right? You know, so, so, so mm-hmm. that's something that I try to work against. Uh, in terms of advising students, you know, I encourage um, students who are working in the present and theater within the last you know, generation, the last 30 years, uh, to uh, be clear about articulating the rigors of the work that they're doing. Because sometimes people think that doing work that's happened last week or 10 years ago is easier than doing work that you know happened 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a challenge in terms of the sheer amount of data and access you have. Like the fact that you can actually go and interview everyone attached to your production, the fact that you have an excess of, of reviews and performance notes and archives and props and remains and you know programs and all these things. And you have to make sense of this excess information. Uh, and if you're doing really recent work, there's not a critical um, uh, a consensus you know, on whether the work matters or not, right? You know, so you're the first voice out there to say that this thing is really important. Um, and that's a bold claim. It, it, like you, you can't actually rely upon others to make the case for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like there's there's rigor there, and I think that sometimes when uh, scholars uh, look down upon those who work, you know, on theater that happened in the year 2016, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're denying uh, that level of rigor, and they're also, I think, denying the short history of theater history itself. No, that's that's interesting because there's this thing that comes up with. Um digital digital uh, humanities and digital history, which is the move from scarcity to abundance, right? That is exactly what Harvey's talking about. Yeah, which I think is kind of creating its own issue, right? It's creating its own issue now in terms of like, I mean, what do you do with like, I mean, all these archives that are now scanned and available, you know, where you can access the collection at your laptop, right? And, and that's creating a concern about, you know, what does it mean to look at the photograph of the object as opposed to actually handle the object itself? And, and, and how does that impact how we write um, about the history of theater? I think these are really good points. And I, to, to you know, speak up on behalf of historians who I think are perennially dismayed with how many, you know, Aster working sessions or Atha panels or, or books or what have you are about the present or the recent past. I don't think that people are dismissive of work on contemporary topics. I think there's, I I do think that prejudice exists, you know, that people might say, oh, well, this is, you know, what's popular this year, but what's its real long-term significance. What I I really think, though, is that people are uh, concerned that there's just less proportional representation of earlier periods so that at Aster, there's, you know, a golden age session there's always a you know shakespeare working group but there's you you get more sessions that are dedicated to different critical paradigms different aspects of contemporary performance and fewer panels and sessions that are dedicated to i don't know early the early modern or the ancient world etc so i don't think people are dismissive of the early work maybe they are but i think the concern is partly about how much energy is being dedicated to um old things versus new things i I also think it's Uh, worthwhile to note that um i think part of the sort of presentist push is also tied into you know looking at feminist and queer theater as well as um sort of theater by you know artists of color uh, all colors <laughs> right and, and and that's part of it too right you know, so that if you're looking at you know what's emerged over the past two generations 
I would not be surprised, um, you know, if you find these really nuanced, uh, sophisticated, uh, close critical uh, engagements, you know, with work that um, is new for the field of theater, you know, relative to its long history, right? So I think that's important, um, that there are entire new perspectives and frameworks that are uh, being introduced uh, through scholars working on the present. Well said. Um, I would love to continue this conversation. We, I think we need to move on to the next topic, but there are, there are really great things in this article. Uh, Odom and, Wal- and Walker make a very interesting argument about the genesis of performance studies and its relation to modernism, essentially arguing that one way to interpret the advent of performance studies is that as the historical avant-garde sort of dies in the 1960s, performance studies emerges taking on its um, aesthetic mm-hmm. aims through a different name. And, and I, I think this is actually an argument indebted to Martin Puchner. But there's a lot in there and, and definitely a really interesting article worth reading. But why don't we move on to our next topic? Um, I wanted to have a chance to talk about applied theater in the field of theater and performance studies. This was really spurred for me by um, Ann Bastings uh, winning of the MacArthur Grant last year for her work bringing theater and improvisational techniques and theater making to older people and especially older people suffering from dementia. You can go to the MacArthur Foundation's website and see the page and see a video interview with Professor Basting. But it brought into my mind something that I have wondered about from time to time, which is what is the status of applied theater or education theater in theater and performance studies. I will confess that I wasn't familiar with Ann Basting's work before she won the MacArthur Grant. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But the work is amazing and and really important. And she's not the only one working in this way. There are whole programs dedicated to applied theater. There's an MA in applied theater at CUNY. There's a PhD EDD at the uh, Steinhardt School at NYU, which is specifically about educational theater. And I think in a way you can connect this up with a uh, long um, intellectual tradition, including drama therapy, right, Jacob Moreno, um, and theater for social change. But when I think of performance studies, certainly when you think about, you know, Atha and Astor, I feel like there's not that much attention given to applied theater. And I wonder if this is an underappreciated, sort of unfairly marginalized part of our field. And um, if so, why do we think that is? Just to add one more uh, detail, and I, I may be misremembering, but I believe that one of the top three or five highest impact journals is also like drama in education or, or, or something like that. It's um, mm-hmm. and I can't remember if that's U- U.S. or U.K. Uh, I'd have to I'd have to I'll, I'll look that up. But I, I do know that I remember because I was looking at uh, sort of comparing different journals by by their impact factor. And I believe that, that, that one of the top three was, was one that is specifically dedicated to, to an area of applied, applied theater. So yeah. just to sort of reinforce everything you're saying, panel, I think, I think this is uh, an, an, an overlooked area of the field by some of us, but also a yeah. really significant one that is obviously not being ignored by everyone. Yeah. Harvey, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think that it's weird in that I, I've, my sense is that applied theater, applied theater emerged in many ways in rejection of drama therapy, right? Like it, it, there was like a decade where people would not want to actually use, you know, uh, the, the phrasing of drama therapy to describe the work that they were doing because 
um, I, I don't know this history, but my, my general sense from just talking with people, kind of like the felt affect, the affect <laughs> you know, that it's kind of received about their disagreement yeah. with that phrasing, uh, you know, was that it had been sort of challenged, you know, in a previous generation, and then what they were doing what was new. Uh, but I think that you know what uh, was, was sort of MacArthur Genius Award winning, uh, you know, what exists across a lot of universities is demonstrating how theater has a useful role. Uh, within everyday life, right? Whether it's um, within a medical arena, sort of helping seniors to remember, um, especially those who are dealing with Alzheimer's, uh, within museum culture, right? In terms of public education programs, um, you know, informing arts policy, right? In terms of, um, you know, the growth within community engagement initiatives within private companies, uh, professional theater companies. So I think that, like, applied theater, you know, is branching in all those directions, but one of the challenges is because it branches in so many directions, it's hard for the group to cohere. Right. right, you know, because each person works in a slightly different arena, um, so there's not necessarily a, you know, a single core constituency, you know, that, that does all of this work. I agree with you, Harvey. At, at a certain point, there's a you feel like there's some sort of old stigma that's attached to drama therapy, and maybe it's a kind of post '70s uh, critique of kind of therapy and narcissistic, weird and creative ways of of exploring oneself through these different means. Um, I also wonder, you know, though, if it doesn't sort of map onto just what you were saying, um, criticism of things that are applied uh, as being dismissive because they're not as, um, ironically, as not as rigorous, right? That, so they're, they're not as thoughtful or as sort point. of ambitious. And, and also because a lot of this work is dedicated within communities of care and, and mm-hmm. service and well-being of others, right, which tend to be feminized yeah. and therefore... Uh, dismissed and overlooked and marginalized um, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, sort of, quote, unquote, you know, pure research, which is sort of the the, the independent scholar genius realizing valuable tracts of information. So I, that's, right. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just that also occurs to me in that context of drama therapy is as being a kind of carryover also about its its affiliation with with, oh, with care. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and and it also sort of reinscribes this the priority of ideas over practice um, that the field more broadly is familiar with in terms of how artistic practice is treated by and incentivized by the universities as opposed to dealing with ideas in in books and articles and such. And, and it's um, also not reviewed, or it's rarely reviewed. The uh, books and, and, in this. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I mean the the the. the the work. products of applied theater work, right? Oh, so, reviewed as like aesthetic work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's like there's not a a newspaper reviewer who's going to um, like the senior home, right? You know, to, yeah. to to talk about the effectiveness of this, you know, as theater, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the challenges I think that hits universities. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do you measure impact uh, when a lot of the work is process based, uh, as opposed to looking for an evaluation of a final product? Although ironically. I would say that one of the other ways in which we dismiss this work is that it, in fact, does have measurable outcomes, but they are not the measurable outcomes, and nor do they adhere to the methodologies that we typically look for in, in measuring aesthetic work, right? I mean, Absolutely. if you're doing applied theater work, the, the measurable outcome is like, what is the effect on health? Right yeah. in this population, yeah. what is the effect on? And there are lots of social science data collection methods that mm-hmm. I think we also on the the more aesthetically oriented, um, you know, idea-based work are also dismissive of, in part because it, tra- you know, it begins to complicate this idea of the no right answer, and um, and an argument made through rhetoric rather than collected evidence. 
And I think, it, it, you know, and it also seems to blur some of the methodologies, which I, I think can make those of us who practice in the, in the arts and humanities insecure, right, when somebody shows up with their data and their slides and their measurable <laughs> outcomes. Yes. That's interesting. She yeah. says as the partner to a social scientist. Sarah, when you brought up the Drama and Education Journal, if that is indeed its name, I you reminded remember. me of the fact. I apologize. No, 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 no. It's fine. But you, you remind me of the fact that you know TJ Theater Journal used to be called Educational Theater Journal. I would. It would be interesting to look up the history of that change in title, because did that suggest that the mission of the journal originally was, you know, it's theater in higher education as opposed to, you know, theater more broadly as a sort of object of critical study on par with literature and was there perhaps more of a you know pedagogical bent or a you know applied theater bent to to theater journal when it was called educational theater journal there there is a history here that at one time i knew or had greater inkling of than i do in this moment but i know that there are people who who remember that shift and and can in, can inform us of it. So that, I mean, that might be something interesting to follow up for a future episode. Um, I was reminded also in, in terms of the, you know, the sort of devaluing of the practice or the material aspect of theater, those, the image in Shannon Jackson's um, professing performance of George Pierce Baker, you know, working with paper mache in one of the buildings at Harvard while his colleagues are all, you know, pronouncing on, uh, you know, their interpretations of T.S. Eliot or whatever that, it may be a you know it may be a sort of broader anti-theatrical prejudice within theater studies that has us look askance at people who are doing theater in order to get other types of aims instead of looking at theater in itself or or uh, in order to, you know in sort of producing criticism and theory um, as its own goal. So, so what are your thoughts about applied theater within theater departments? And what I mean by this is, you know. How valuable or how important is it for a theater department to have a person who specializes in applied theater? I, I think it really depends on the on the on the program, uh, and also who's who's being served by that. I mean, as a so as chair of a small liberal arts, de, you know, department, I would uh, really welcome that. Uh, at the same time. I already, you know, what do you what do you give up? So I'll go to bed. I'll do the like the yes and right. So yes, I think it would be enormously helpful to have someone who has that that level of expertise because I do think that um, the and certainly in many institutions where the language of the value of a program is directly related to what are the jobs, what is the market, what are the applicable skills that students are giving are given in the program uh, when they graduate, this certainly seems like an incredibly rich area of study, of interest, of, of practical application that would serve not just theater students, but would serve students in education or sociology or people who are in the health professions who are you know thinking about this. So I think that there's something really valuable. And that may be an argument that could be made to administrators about you know uh, whether it's a joint appointment or uh, a jointly funded line in in theater or in another department that begins to build out those that kind of those disciplinary connections. Yeah, I think we might also be forgetting one big plank of what could be considered applied theater, which is um, theater for social change. You know, Bowal, uh, Freire, these models, I think, 
continue to sustain people's interest in practice. And that's another example of theater's tools and practices being used for another purpose, right? To, you know, forum theater and um, those techniques are oriented towards aims that are not in just the sort of pure aesthetic exploration of, of theater forms. And so student interest exists that way. And, sure. you know, maybe maybe the answer would not be to have faculty members who do applied theater um, per se and cover all these categories, but to, you know, acknowledge that applied theater is something that we actually are all very interested in. There's a longer history of this in the 20th century. I know this because um, uh, Paige McGinley, uh, my wife, is uh, working on the sort of theatrical um, educational background movements of the civil rights movement. And so the the notion of theater being used for education, for training, um, for you know therapy is all there in the early 20th century. Um, Viola Spolin also, um, you know, I believe before she creates her theater games and improvisational exercises that end up being part of the foundation of um, Second City and and you know the whole improv theater movement. Um, I believe she started by you know, using theater as a social worker um, to go and, and uh, engage with immigrant communities. And so there's a long history of a lot of really interesting um, theater and social work that, that comes under this umbrella. And just to wrap it around, you know, one of the key examples that, that Walker and Odom give in their, in their essay that we just discussed is uh, the notion of cultural performances like activist uh, demonstration. So they tra- they they cite Tracy Davis among other folks. So so I do think that this is something that has probably become un, un unnecessarily and and unproductively marginalized. Uh, why don't we move on and talk about contemporary theater? Let's get even more presentist. Uh, so th- <laughs> there are new uh, theater seasons for prominent American theaters being announced online. We looked at these. Harvey, what do you see happening? What are the trends? Are there trends? Um, what do you make of the new uh, season announcements that are coming out? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite times uh, of the year uh, in which uh, professional theaters all over the country announce their lineup for the 2017-2018 season. So there's all sorts of new works. There's the revival of, of, of great old things. There's, there's, there's lots of Shakespeare <laughs> as well. Oh. And, uh, and it's just fascinating. So it's, it allows me in this moment to imagine you know, that I'm going to hop on a plane and see all these things. And then I pretend, you know, or sometimes I fool myself into thinking that I will get a subscription somewhere like to the signature and then we'll fly to New York every three months to see a new show. Um, which doesn't often happen, but it's a great moment when I'm thinking about it. You know, it's so exciting. Uh, so, but in terms of trends, what do I notice here? Uh, one really interesting thing um, that strikes me as new for regional theaters uh, is an expansion of their seasons. So you can look at Berkeley Rep, Guthrie, uh, Steppenwolf in the same way. Uh, it's becoming increasingly common for theater companies to have main stage seasons that have seven or eight plays uh, rather than four or five. You know, and the subscription model then becomes, you know, pick three out of five or five out of five, uh, sorry, three out of seven or five out of seven or all, or all seven. And the reason for that, I suspect, is diversity, right? Um, that it allows a theater company to champion the work of, of uh, female uh, playwrights, uh, um, 
majority female ensembles, uh, playwrights of color, majority uh, 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 actor of color ensembles as well, you know, without actually losing their core subscriber base, right? So it allows them to say, look at all the diversity that we have on stage without having to say, I'm gonna prioritize these works as one of four, one of five, right? Instead, it's like, you know, one of seven, right? Or, or, or one of or six. And, and that's really interesting to me. Uh, you can actually sort of see how companies that have struggled with whose voices are, are, are appearing on stage have, have, have responded to that criticism you know, by just increasing the number of plays they produce rather than actually diversifying a smaller set. So that's interesting to me. You know, I'm excited about the fact that Looking Glass Theater in Chicago here is doing Hard Times, which is my favorite production I've seen in Chicago. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting the observation you make about the larger seasons because that would seem to rebut the perception of theater dying and subscriber bases aging. I wonder if these productions are getting comparatively less funding, you know, if these are sort of smaller productions but more productions. In the in the announcement language for many of these seasons, there are you know, efforts to address the problems of diversity and to signal, you know, playwrights coming from different backgrounds. I think, you know, People's Light and Theater Company's announcement includes the statement that these plays come from writers of very different backgrounds and experiences, and they share an impulse to elevate our understanding of the complex human heart. So you get the sense that artistic directors are, and, and artists are responding to, you know, years of activism and people drawing attention to the fact that you can't you can no longer have an all, you know, a season with all male playwrights. So, yeah, I think that definitely was in there as well. I wonder about how they're managing to put on more plays financially. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's lower budgets, smaller uh, smaller casts as well, uh, some shorter runs. Uh, certainly, there is the diversity push <laughs> yeah, that occurs as well. Yeah, but this trend, and, and I've spoken to a few artistic directors about this move to larger seasons, is not unlike creating a reading list uh, within a history, a theater history program, you know, where if you say, okay, who are your top 10 playwrights of all time? It looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you try to get a group of people to diversify that lineup, it's really hard to do because, you know, you know, there's resistance. But if you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to double it. Now you have your top 20, (laughs) right? You know, that creates the possibility of inclusion without actually making your more conservative element, you know, have to sort of give up what they're passionate about in favor of uh, something that they're not. I also wonder to what extent, I'd be curious about the demographics too, right? Uh, Because I would imagine that there are some people, and I think there are increasingly fewer, who go to see everything a theater does. Whereas if you see, if, if, if you have that small contingent seeing seven shows a year instead of four shows a year, and then you can supplement those kinds of real dedicated viewers with people who are dropping in for one show, two show, three shows, uh, you might be able to build out sort of robust um, audiences. I would also, it also occurs to me, right, that this is the season before the season that will include Hamilton tickets at a lot of these spaces, which was used as a, right, if you wanted the ticket to Hamilton, you had to be a season subscriber in the year that it came out. <laughs> to be a season subscriber in the year that it came out, you had to be a subsi- season subscriber the year before. And this is actually yep. now the season that those that, that population would have signed up for. So yep. it seems to me that this also presents, in the, in the pre-Hamilton regional theater season, this is the season where you've got a captive audience 
that might be there for another reason, but you've it's, got him for yeah. two years, right? Yeah. With the promise yeah. of one show. <laughs> and so what are you doing with the shows, with, with, the, with these two years that you've got where these people have signed up for, you know, X number, uh, X number of shows? Well, I think that's true, but Sarah, is, it, is Hamilton going to be rolled out and made available to regional theaters with subscribers? Or is it the touring productions that, you know, certain theaters that present work that's moving around the country? I, I thought it was available... Harvey Maybe probably knows is. this better than I do. I my understanding was that it was made available to to both, right? So it was touring houses, but also some regional theaters would get the right to produce it. But in order, am I wrong yeah. about that? I'm not sure. I I, I I I may be confusing those two. Well, it's it's definitely happening with the touring houses, and yeah. it may be that there's some sort of runoff into regional theater Maybe it's audiences the following as season well. where the regional I, there was some kind of rollout plan. I forgive me yeah. if I'm mistaken in that. No, no, no. I just I, I wonder if that's true because I think you're unmistakably right about those touring houses. Um, and in a way, it might help answer the question of how some of these big theaters are able to stage these larger seasons. Um, the one other show that I thought was interesting, well, there were a number of interesting shows. Father Comes Home from the War is, is popping up in a couple of different places. It was also the um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival's Queer Oklahoma mm-hmm. um, of the, which I, I'd be very curious to see it, but as, a, as, a, as an initial prejudgment, I'm like, like, where is the not queer <laughs> Oklahoma? I, I mean, isn't that like always like really a kind of gay play? And I'm so I'm, I, I'm like really curious how how that that is gonna, pl- pl- you know, play out. Like, and and will the overt presence of same sex couples on stage kill the camp elements of of what I've always considered to be an, an excessively queer <laughs> musical uh, all on its own? I, I noticed um, another thing in some of these announcements, which is that there's a kind of, you get the sense that there's a, a desire to signal response to this unique political moment, but in ways that are somehow, are sometimes kind of hard to detect. In other words, like, or for example, Berkeley Rep's announcement, they're reviving Angels in America, but they're also mm-hmm. doing like a lemony <laughs> snicket play. And, and yet, and yet they... You know, they say that all of these writers have something to tell us with a sense of political urgency as they reimagine the world in a way that's entertaining, insightful, and, and ultimately irresistible. So there's this signal to the completely transformed political landscape and a need to respond to it. But I imagine these seasons are, many of them were planned or in the works before November 8th. It was interesting to see how and in what ways the plays seemed to be trying to engage in contemporary political discourse yeah. or representation. I looked at, so my, my first two seasons I looked at, the first one was Oregon Shakespeare, which is doing Othello, and then the other season that I kind of randomly picked, I forget which, which company it was, is also doing Othello. So I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, all these companies are now doing Othello. What does that mean in this moment, right? And then and then, and then, there's only like three oh, productions totally. of Othello <laughs> going on. So it's like, it's like this, is not, this right. is not holding, which is part of the challenge, you know, that, like, again, the sort of scholars who write about the present have to deal with, right? It's like, how do you understand you know, how theater is engaged in the contemporary moment, you know, in light of all these different um, staging choices and, and production seasons, right? So that's the challenge. And you have to kind of boldly go out there and say, this is what uh, is reflective of the times, you know, even as they're, even as you acknowledge conflicting evidence. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? So, so you know, but, but you're making the argument, you know, for the future, for future historians to yeah. either agree with or disagree. Yeah, with. That's a, it's true. 
Well, this I, I will sort of put in a little plug, and this is uh, this will go back again to our first segment about the the Walker and Odom article, which is the the role that digital humanities and and statistical analysis can play in detecting some of these larger trends, right? So there there are a few times in our discussion over this podcast where I've been sort of making notes and thinking like, oh yes, that would really be interesting to track as a system of data analysis. So one of them is I would really love to, you know, put into sort of an, an R format looking at uh, dissertation topics, right, over the last, you know, however many decades we have data. And 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 is it true that, that most of them are always in response to theater of the last, of the previous 20 years? Or was there uh, a so-called golden age when people did a lot more historical work, right, mm-hmm. and sort of theater history beyond their own uh, sort of generational moment? Or are we all, you know, are, do, are we have we always sort of been working in the same rough time frame? And I think that, you know, a lot of the questions that we've been raising this episode, it just occurs to me, really remind me of why these kinds of methods of analysis remain crucial uh, and why they should be increasingly disseminated and part of our training system. You got in there the the manifesto for digital humanities. You did it. I try to evangelize, <laughs> you know, whenever I have to. We got it. it just, I, you know, the, the spirit moved me, so there you go. Um, why don't we move on, guys, to our drafts? Our drafts, uh, new listeners should know, are what we're thinking about. Maybe something we haven't sat down to write about or a fully formed scholarly or intellectual project, but thoughts that have been bouncing around our heads. I'm going to go first this time just to mix things up. This is a weird one and kind of a dumb one, but for reasons that I don't need to go into. I've seen the movie Arrival now, I think like three times. Wow. Um, yeah, one of the t- no, one of the times was just to listen to Forrest Whitaker's accent, um, uh, but uh, which is really weird. But there's that moment in Arrival where uh, Amy Adams' character, she's being recruited to be the linguist who deciphers the alien language and the Forrest Whitaker's character mentions that they're going to go to another linguist and see if he can do it. And she says, you know, ask this guy the Sanskrit word for (laughs) war and its translation. And I think the moment is supposed to be, you know, from one academic specialist to another, you know, ask him this to see if he really knows his stuff or to communicate something important, you know, in the context of the movie. But it's gotten me thinking about what the, the theater and performance studies specific sort of you know, expertise, judging question or general knowledge question would be. And it's a tough one. I want to know if you guys can come up with one that you think would be, it's, it's a good, you know, party conversation game. Um, and I want to know reader, readers should, or pardon me, listeners should also post on our Facebook wall or on Twitter. If, if you guys think you have a good equivalent for that in theater and performance studies, the, the best one that I could come up with, and it's because the field is so diverse and, and polyglot it's hard to get one that encapsulates everything but you know to me the the one that's a fun challenge is can you name 10 african-american playwrights which to me being someone who isn't doesn't specialize in american drama or african-american drama like i can do that but it takes me a little bit of effort and of course that you know it, it favors certain specialties over another but what do you guys think what is the question that you'd say you know ask such and such scholar if they know this fact or can do this to see if they really know their stuff okay i i don't have a good one i have not given it enough thought but i will think uh, on it i will say though it, it, to get very nerdy with you for a moment 
I think the that what's significant in that question of the Amy Adams <laughs> I know. is not actually the um, the exposing of an area of of knowledge in a knowledge gap of a colleague. It is a, a very carefully calibrated question to expose a certain bias yes. towards violence yes. and language that is going to be particularly unuseful in what the military is is about to granted, do. Granted, granted. And so that, if we wanted to find the equivalent, it's not even like what's the tricky <laughs> question to answer. It's it's what it's basically how do you lay a rhetorical test of the biases of your of your colleagues into which they will think they know, but will unwittingly expose. Yeah, or the, yeah, or that they're wrong. Yeah, that the that this particular point of data is important, not as trivia, but as a right. uh, you know revealing of some worldviews. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I have no idea what the what the question is that exposes the worldview. No, I mean, I mean that the the theater performance person on the no, screen. No, but that that's a good point, uh, Sarah. It's funny that we we've, we've all seen Arrival. <laughs> I think that's really funny, <laughs> but it's great. Uh, but I but the question just might be, at what point does theater become performance, and then when does performance become theater? Right, sort of as a way of making a person then have to create some sort of line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they even assume that, you know, that there's this continuum that exists that uh, allows one to merge or become the other, right? So I think there's something yeah. about that where a person's interest and biases can be revealed. Totally. Um, Harvey, so, what, panel, when, so, so, yeah, so yeah. panel, when does theater become performance? <laughs> theater becomes performance. <laughs> um, theater, I can't... <laughs> It's a it's a good one. What is performance, or what's the difference between theater and performance? You know, I think theater employs a representational matrix that's self consistent and relies on narrative in ways that the broader category of performance does not. I can't believe that you've gotten me into answering this question spontaneously on the on the podcast. <laughs> What I think think is very interesting is that that we've all seen Arrival, that we all have thoughts about Arrival, because for me, Arrival is itself a really interesting negotiation in terms of its temporality and its notions of temporality of the difference between literature and performance, right? Whereas, you know, like what is what is the what is the symbolic language, right, of the heptapods that that Amy, you know, um, Adam's character uncovers it. But, uh, you know, but is this idea of like the, the really radical revolutionary thing about the language is that it's all present simultaneously mm-hmm. and that that conflates time into single moments in which we see the past, the present and the future in a kind of uh, in a single iteration, which, of course, is arguably what the theatrical experience does. Right. Even when it's moving through linear time is to conflate and bring together all of these things simultaneously. So it, in many ways, this, I think, arrival is a really interesting metaphor for theatrical experience. And so it doesn't surprise me that three theater and performance geeks all <laughs> saw arrival multiple times, as I did also. Uh, Harvey, what's your draft? My draft is on interculturalism and difference in Canadian theater. Uh, and I don't really have a really uh, any great insight here. But next month, I'm going to join sort of, sort of conversations, uh, one, at, one in Toronto, um, sponsored by Modern Stage Theater, um, the, the Modern Stage Company that's organized by Nick Rideout and Natalie Alvarez. 
Uh, and then a couple weeks later, or a week later, I'll be at McGill in Montreal, um, you know, in a Bodies of Difference conference organized by uh, Katie Zine. Uh, and and the, the, the topics are, you know, one is kind of post-marginal interculturalism and theater. The other one's Bodies and Difference. Uh, and it just made me think, sort of, what is it about this moment in 2017 where uh, it's Canadian institutions, um, you know, sort of partnerships between universities and professional theater companies that's really driving um, uh, this discussion, uh, this um, investigation into interculturalism? It is interesting. You know, Maybe and I'll have they, more to report after I'm there. <laughs> good, yeah. Maybe they just want to gloat on how they're so much better than the United States right now. Well, you know, they, they just I just saw this announcement this morning that I guess the Toronto school districts have now forbidden school field trips from crossing the border into the U.S. Nice. Um, Sarah, what's your draft? My draft, so I've been thinking about and reading uh, about museums as sites of performance. So I've been rereading Susan Bennett's Theater and uh, Museums, and I've been uh, reading Jody Cantor's uh, really interesting Presidential Libraries as Performance. But the, the piece that I want to draw attention to that I've been, uh, that I really enjoyed, in part for its kind of political resonance as well as its Tracy Davis's usual, uh, you know, exquisite prose, is uh, she has a TDR comment um, <laughs> yes. from this spring uh, on Welcome to the Election Experience. And it talks about uh, sort of, you know, reactions. It was written before, I believe, bef- before the outcomes, right, or the, uh, of the election. Um, uh, but in response to the Republican National Convention, among other things, but also looking at the um, the Creation Museum in Petersburg, <laughs> Kentucky, yes. and uh, and so you know I love Scott Mogelson's work, and I've I've you know read Simming and, and some of his other you know works on living history, and and I found this just a it's a it's a short piece, it's an incredibly focused um, piece, but but um, but you know she really takes up John Fletcher's. Uh, call to read generously, so she she enters into this sort of experience without uh, without animus and, and really with a kind of open probing and thinking about what's what's happening here. And I just so I've been thinking a lot about this this idea of, of museums and uh, the ways in which different technologies engender certain kinds of performances and reactions within them. So I highly recommend uh, Tracy Davis's TDR comment from from the spring issue. Fantastic. This is great. Well, thank you guys so much for your uh, participation. That, that's weird. Why am I thanking you for your participation <laughs> 12, 12 episodes in? Ha- happy to be here, uh, as always. And, and listeners, <laughs> listeners, thank you for uh, downloading and streaming, and we will have more for you very soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.